this is the word of the Lord. Sometimes you have that experiential evidence that it is when Pastor Bill and myself don't coordinate Psalm 16. He quotes it, we read it, the Holy Spirit orchestrated it. All right, All right I'm just going to look at this and see. I think the battery's dead. There's no light. No. I started reading a book this week, made about halfway through. It's not a large book, but I was, um, of course, doing a lot of other things this week as well. It's called The Wisdom Pyramid, uh, put out by Brett McCracken just a year ago. And he takes the, you remember the food pyramid? He takes that analogy and applies it to truth, information, and wisdom. Of course, they're not all equal, are they? But wisdom is being able to use that knowledge for godly purposes. And anyway, in the, in the beginning of this, uh, he talks about our, our information cons- consumption and uh, how that has become prevalent since around 2000, 2008 in particular. Uh, But in the midst of that, here's some other research that I thought was very poignant uh, for our society, our culture, for people. Uh, Early on in uh, the introduction, he says, people are increasingly lonely. And he quotes a survey, um, or actually a a scientific kind of index, uh, Cygnus, Loneliness Index found that just under half, 46% of Americans always or sometimes feel alone. The highest levels of loneliness, interestingly, are among Generation Z, iGen. I have some. Uh, Not that they're necessarily lonely, but they're in that Gen Z. Uh, Loneliness has the same impact on mortality as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. He's quoting from um, this material. Making it even more dangerous than obesity. And is increasingly regarded as a public health crisis by governments around the world. In 2017, the UK uh, became the first world government to actually install a minister of loneliness. You know, that's right on parallel with minister of defense, minister of state, you know, minister of loneliness. And in the UK, a minister is not a pastor. A minister is is a government official for loneliness. And 21.8 million pounds budgeted for that government office. Pounds are worth more than dollars. This is to fight the loneliness strategy um, to address the crisis. Interesting. We're going to look, I I think, uh, through the summertime a mini-series in John chapters 14, 15, and 16. And 
John has a, a word that he uses, uh, is it 68 times in the whole of his, of his writings, John's Gospel, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And it's 68 times in 54 verses. And it's the word dwell, abide, remain. Sometimes translated live. And in, in John 14, 15, and 16, there's a, a small concentration of this term abide. 14 times. So I want to approach these chapters in a little, a little bit unique way. It would be much, much alike how we did in 2008. We went through the whole of John's Gospel. And now these years later, I want to look at just this portion of the Scripture. And it kind of holds together. Um, the scholars begin at, ver at chapter 13, go through chapter 17, and call it the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, not... And that's fine. That's good. I guess I would, I would suggest that chapter 17 is more a prayer than a discourse. And actually, I think the location changes by the time you get to chapter 17. I think now they're at least on the road or they've gotten to the garden just the night of Jesus' betrayal. So we're, I'm thinking that that's where we're going to go in this. And Jesus um, has told them, warned them, uh, that... He's going to go. He's going to go away from them and that they cannot come. And any number of us, when we're faced with parting friends, close friends or parting loved ones, there is a, a sense in which we become a little bit lost. We become unable to put the pieces together, the connections. Well, what's next? If you're going away, what's next? And I don't know what to do. We, we know that experience. It's happened to us, hasn't it? Corporately, personally. Now, since Jesus is going away, Peter and his, and his friends can't come along with him. Chapter 13, verse 36. And they're having trouble answering this question, what's next? And Jesus, in his, in his grace, gathers the disciples together and he gives them the what's next. He gives them um, a purpose. He gives them a mission. He gives them a picture of what their life will be together. Jesus gathered his disciples together uh, in that upper room. He shared the Last Supper and the way John puts it together, it almost seems as if it's before Passover. It's kind of a pre-Passover. He knows he's going to be the Passover lamb himself at the time of the sacrifice. And so he has this last supper with his disciples and he converts it. He totally changes it into a new covenant meal having superseded the old covenant which we've talked about in the book of Hebrews, haven't we? He washes the disciples' feet and he gives them a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. And he's going to show them the extent of his love by dying for them. As Christ has loved us, so we 
love one another. We love because he first loved us to the death and then to the life. And Jesus knows loneliness too when he tells them this. John chapter 16, verse 32. We get just a little bit ahead, but we're trying to set the stage. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone. The Father is with me. The Father is with me. And so chapter 14 begins with this whole setting surrounding it. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus has a troubled spirit. Chapter 13, verse 21. And he says, part of the reason why, someone's going to betray me and one of you are going to deny me. That's a lonely place. A significantly lonely place. You can be surrounded by people, yet having been betrayed, backstabbed, is immensely lonely. A lonely place. He told them that he's going away. They cannot come with him. And this causes the disciples then to have a troubled spirit. And Jesus speaks words of encouragement. And this section is often called the Sermon on the Father. Because he talks about his heavenly Father 12 times. And he calls his disciples little children 11 times. You get this, you get this picture of the, the whole section? Dwelling? 14 times? A heavenly father? 12 times? Little children. Not just children. Little children. 11 times. This is a family passage. It's about our family. It's about our family, our life together as Grace Bible Church. And Jesus, in the, in the face of his physical loss and emotional suffering, exhorts his disciples to believe, to have faith in God and in God's Son. And Jesus gives us hope. He gives us motivation. He gives us vision. He gives us a purpose. Verses 1 to 4 outline a place. Isn't that a cool house? It's a real house. I know I sharpened the image just a bit. It looks almost animated. It's a real house in the Swiss Alps. You might identify the shape just a bit. There's a place that is prepared for us. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? But if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and I'll take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. You know, again, these disciples have a lot of troubles. He's leaving. We've been with him for three years, and one, earlier on, just before this, Peter says, we've left everything to follow you. We have nothing left. 
we've left houses, families to follow you. And now you're going to leave us? That raises questions, doesn't it? About viability, about livelihood, their families. But even as they entered this upper room, family gathering, what have they been talking about? Oh, they're bickering over who's the greatest. Yeah, their hearts are troubled on lots of different things. Selfish things, earthly things, temporary things. And understandably, right? We are too. But the troubling of Jesus, oh, chapter 12, verse 27, for example, uh, he says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus knows the suffering that is to come his way. In infinite suffering, yes, that physical, material, and temporary suffering on the cross, but also the infinite and the eternal suffering of the punishment for the sins of the world. And he says, he's, he's praying, what should I say? Save me from this time? Well, I can't. This is why I'm here. And that's troubling him. But it, it is the trouble that Jesus has that now he tells the disciples, you don't need to be troubled. In fact, it's a command. You should not be troubled. Trouble is forbidden. Wow, I think I got four fingers pointing back at me. But his departure, you know, the, the reason for his suffering and troubled spirit and his departure is the very reason that we shouldn't have a troubled heart. He has been troubled in spirit for you. John's Gospel presents several places where Jesus indeed is troubled. John 11, verse 33. John 12, verse 27. John 13, verse 21. But here he says, you don't need to be troubled. I'm carrying it all. Does this not kind of sound like Peter when he talks to the church, he says, cast all your cares upon him because he is anxious for you. And he goes on to say, don't be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. If, if you're not believing God, then you will have trouble. You will have a troubled heart and a troubled spirit. You don't trust him. And that's what the word believe here means, to trust him. To hand over to him all that concerns you. 
Believe in God. Believe in me, Jesus says. I'm troubled for you. I'll carry it all. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. I wouldn't have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you if it weren't true. My Father's house are many rooms. Now, this is, this is typical of uh, an ancient Middle Eastern, well, maybe even some modern dwelling places. They just keep adding on. Oh, son number four is getting married. Let's add another room. They just enlarge, bigger, or up. Now, it's not as if God's surprised. It's been his plan all along. He's making room for his sons and his daughters. Expansion. And this is the hope of all God's children. It's always been our hope. Psalm 23. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the hope. That's the goal. That's the journey's end. To dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And later on, he'll say in verse 23, John 14, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my Father will love him and he'll come to him and make our home with him. Hmm. This, is, this, is, this is the more, uh, shall we say, devotional side of what we've been exploring in the book of Hebrews. God's temple God's holy of holies, that's, that's his chamber room. And in the Old Covenant, that chamber room was cut off, closed off by this curtain of division. And no one may enter in but the, the one high priest once a year to make atonement for sin. Repeated year after year. But now the great high priest... Our Lord Jesus Christ has entered in once and for all time to end all sacrifice and to go into the Holy of Holies and to split the curtain and leave it open that all God's children may approach the throne of grace boldly in time of need and find mercy. We get to go into the dwelling place of God's chamber room. Christ has made it open and available for all the children. To come in. We get to go right in and climb up on the lap and fellowship with our Heavenly Father. Jesus has done this. And He says, I'm going to the cross, to the burial, to resurrection and ascension. And through that, I prepare a place for you that you can enter in and dwell with God. Abide with Him. Rest in Him. Remain in Him. He says, if I go, I will come back for you. Another picture of the bridegroom who goes and builds the house 
and then returns to bring his bride into the home. This is what Ben and Aaliyah have just done. Nolan and Amelia. Perhaps you have too. But all this, this is, this is illustration. We don't conceive of God, the Father, as Father because we were Father first. We don't conceive of Jesus, the Bridegroom, because, well, we have marriage and so we'll make Jesus in our image. It's the exact reverse. Jesus is Bridegroom in character and nature. And God is Father in character and nature, and he has made us in his image. Isn't that amazing? So if you've had a bad experience on an earthly plane in these things, know that that's not the way it's supposed to be. And that it doesn't need to destroy or deter you from a godly picture of what fatherhood is really in the character and nature of God. Or what marriage is really in the character and nature of Christ. Well, we have a place. We have a place. And that's where we really belong. Not only that, but we have a true and living way to that place, verses 5 through 7. Jesus gets through, you know, a couple of sentences, and right away, Thomas. Lord, we don't know where you're going. He's picking up on verse 4. Didn't hear anything else. He just hears the last one. You know the way where I'm going. And Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. He says, you do too. He says, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you'd known me, you'd have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and you have seen him. Jesus is the true and the living way. Thomas reacts, yes. He doesn't seem to know the way. Probably truly. Do you? The way is defined here, Jesus. We know where Jesus is going to the Father. We know how to get there through the Son. Just follow the Son. The Son goes home. Follow Him home. Now, there are sentiments out there today that if you don't know where you're going, any path will take you there. Jesus wants you to know where you're going. Are you going to the place? Are you, are you going to the Father? Are you going to dwell there for all eternity? Do you have an abiding place there? And the way to get there is Jesus. He's the way. The truth, the life. He says in another place, 
you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Really the same kind of concept, isn't it? He's preparing the way, he's preparing the place, and he's, he's preparing the way. He, he takes the way, the way equals road, which can be translated the same way. Same way. Road, way. And, and he's, he's leveling it out. He's making the way straight. He's paving the way to God, the Father. And so you walk with Him. And along the way, he, He's leveling and lowering. He's removing the roadblocks. Sometimes we want to run too far ahead. Sometimes we're lollygagging behind. We stay with Jesus. My yoke is easy. Stay in tandem. Walk with Jesus. And, and again, how has he provided the way? Ultimately, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension is the way. That's what he's provided. The way to the place. Now, there's a, a lot we could talk about in the way, the truth, the life. This, this just has a lot of worldview, apologetic implications, right? What is truth? Jesus. Well, the roadblocks are not just tough things. It, it's us. It's our own sin. And Jesus removes the, the guilt and the penalty for sin. He removes the power of sin. And when we're in the place that he's prepared for us, we will no longer experience the presence of sin. And that's what we long for. That's where we want to get, that where we want to be. And Jesus has paved the way. He is truth. Truth is absolute. It's a person. It's a person. He's a person. Truth is an absolute person. And he is out to dispel the lie. Uh, the lie that you can become like God apart from God. The lie that in your own human ability, you can be all that it means to be human apart from God who made you in His image. The lie that the creation, the fruit, is itself a means to freedom. Is it, is it not ironic that one of the great eye companies uses the apple Not, don't, don't get conspiracy about that. Please don't. In fact, I shouldn't even have said that. Let's just strike that. And yet, the world uses our, our stuff, right? The apple, the rainbow. They use it, steal it, misuse it. And it makes it even difficult for us to use them again sometimes. We need to. We need to reclaim the biblical story, the biblical worldview, and dispel the lie. Because Jesus is the truth, and the truth will set you free. He's life. In John chapter 1, John opened the gospel with this. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
Jesus is life. Hebrews 1 opened the same way. He's the radiance of God's glory, and everything holds together by Jesus. Life. Life. He's the life, and he alone, through his own death, burial, resurrection, has made us alive in him. He's accomplished our forgiveness and restored our fellowship with the Father in heaven. If, but, you believe, you trust him. So we have a place, we have a true and living way to that place, and we have, we have a sufficient vision, we have a clear vision of getting there. Verses 8 to 11. Philip uh, said to him, Lord, show us the Father. Again, uh, he's, he's picking up, interrupting Jesus, didn't even get as far as the first couple sentences. Gets two more sentences in or so. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. And that's enough. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you this long? And you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. At least believe on account of the works themselves. You've been with me. You've seen the Father working. Well, Philip's vision was clouded. Thomas's vision was clouded. Peter's vision was clouded. Judas's, Judas was blind. The Father and the Son, oh, this is wonderful Trinitarian theology, isn't it? One God, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They are one, but they're not the same. They're three persons. They're equal, infinite, eternal, unchanging, each, but one. Deuteronomy 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. One God. Three persons. Can I explain that? Not well. All I have is the scripture itself that shares with us one God, a unity with diversity. This is, this is where real diversity comes from. This is where real unity comes comes from. And our world is particularly eager and anxious to express diversity. But much of it is really just sameness. Unity in diversity is a divine attribute. And we will only know it and experience it in all of its splendor, in all of its glory, in all of its intimacy, only when we begin to know the one God in three persons. 
Jesus is the perfect manifestation, revelation in this time-space continuum of God the Father. Now, faith is not blind, although we learned in Hebrews 11.1, 1, it's the conviction of things not seen. But what we do see is God in Jesus. And that vision opens up the way for us to see into the Holy of Holies the place where we're going. As in the words of Hebrews, the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's the place, the city with whose architect and builder is God Himself, not the temporal of this age. But one of a new creation where righteousness dwells. There's evidence upon which we base our convictions, our beliefs. And Jesus gives us the the two pointers, right? His words and His works. Believe what I tell you, Jesus says, and believe what I have done. His words and His works reveal truth. And these are recorded for us. We have this written word as the manifestation, the revelation of that living word. And this is how John began his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And God dwelt among us. He, in the words of John, he tabernacled among us. The same temple liturgical imagery we've been studying all those weeks in Hebrews. Jesus tabernacled among us and opened up the way. Now look there. Continue to keep your eyes on Jesus. Fix your minds on Jesus. The author, the perfecter of our faith. The apostle and high priest of our confession. Many people have decided to reject the whole notion of faith oh, as a crutch or something less than intellectually honest. And many others view faith really as something more than just wishful thinking or positive thinking. And most people probably simply have faith in the idea of faith. It comes out in the meaning, well-meaning sentiments, but misplaced notions. When public officials say, our prayers are with you. And, and I'm not God. You know that. But how often do they actually pray? The sentiment's there. They just have faith in the idea of faith. 
No, for all God's children who have a place where we're going. And we know the way and the person to follow to get to the place. And we're going to keep our eyes on him all the way to the Father's home. For, for, for those of us, biblical faith is a robust conviction of heart and mind based on the evidence set forth in the words and works of Jesus. Jesus. I, I ask you, look to Jesus and trust your life to him because I want to see you in that place where righteousness dwells and you can too. So, Father, we come in Jesus' name through him we ask that you would uh, deepen our yearnings, our longings, our desires for that heavenly place. Uh, ultimately, that heaven will come to earth in a new creation, yes. That's where we want to be. That's where we want to end up. And in many of our trials and sufferings, sometimes we can lose perspective and we can uh, get afraid. And we can lose our assurance along the way. So may this be a good refresher and reminder and renewal of our faith and hope and love in Jesus. And keep on the way. And I ask for, for the one with us this morning who's never trusted Jesus but now has seen him in, in some capacity of his goodness, his glory. That, that, that this one would give their troubled heart to Jesus who will carry it, carry it away. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. I ask these things in his name, the power of your spirit. Amen.